Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend marks the 10th Sunday after Pentecost, and our texts are from Job chapter 38, verses 4 to 18, Romans chapter 10, 5 through 17, and then Matthew chapter 14, it's verses 22 to 33. The biggest common thread that you're going to be looking for here is, is really going to be between the Old Testament and the Gospel text. And the connection is in this divinity of Christ. It's in the divinity of God himself. And that his, his, well, his fullness, his majesty, his glory his understanding, his knowledge, all of these things are so far beyond ourselves and our knowledge and our ability and, and what we bring. So we're going to see that with Job. It's really the, the whole line of reasoning in, in the Job text. And then it connects to the gospel reading at a couple of different points. Uh, the idea of water is going to connect them uh, and and that God has control, he has authority over water as Jesus displays his divinity to his disciples. So we begin with Job chapter 38 for our Old Testament reading. And again, it's going to be verses 4 through 18. Now, it's worth noting that Job, despite being such a lengthy book in the Old Testament, will often only be read in your church twice every three years. And both of those are from the same chapter and have a lot of overlap. So in year A of the lectionary, where our current pattern here, we read this section, verses 4 to 18. In year B, also during the summer months in the proper season, you would read chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. So you get a couple verses before and you don't get quite as long of the text as, as we do this time. If your church has an Easter sunrise service in year C, the appointed reading for that service is from Job 19. It's one that you're familiar with. It's the text where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, from where we get one of our hymns. So Job is not a very familiar book to Christians if they're just relying on what they hear in church. We don't get a whole lot of the book. And, and for a brief overview for you then, uh, in a couple of ways. First, Job is perhaps the first book of the Bible to ever actually be written down. That may come as striking because it's certainly not near the beginning of the book. And we have this picture of, of the Bible sometimes as though it's chronological from beginning to end. And in many ways, there is some of that and it's beneficial. But you know, we have to remember that Genesis, the first book of God's word, is not actually written until the time of Moses. While Moses lived 3,500 years ago from where we are now, the earliest estimate of the age of the earth being around 6,000 years old would mean that Moses wrote Genesis 2,500 years after Genesis chapter 1 would have occurred. Many, many generations pass before we get to Moses. And that's not to discredit Genesis, not at all. Um, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. So I have no problem 
with the idea that the Holy Spirit could have given Moses exactly what needed to be written and recorded of all of those historical events. That being said, why we think that Job may have been written even earlier than that, you will often hear it said that Job would have lived during the time of the patriarchs, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he may have been a contemporary to one of them. But grammatically speaking, and as we look at the grammar, the Hebrew text that is before us, the, the language, the, the rhetoric of the text is an older form of Hebrew than what most of the rest of the Old Testament is. So just the, the information that we have surrounding the text would make it seem that way, that this one particular event happens even earlier than much of what we know. Now, it doesn't happen before Adam and Eve, chronologically, it just, got, it just got written down before those things were written down. That's what I'm suggesting here. Now, what's going on in the book? Well, the book begins really with God lifting up the faith of his servant Job. And Satan, the accuser, for his Hebrew name there, Satan attacks that and makes the accusation at first that Job only believes because things have gone so well for him, and that if things are just taken away from him, Job will curse God, he will leave God, he will abandon that faith. And so God does allow Satan to test the faith of Job, and that's what's going to occur. Job was a wealthy man, had a, a large family, and, and quite a lot of livestock and servants and, and those kinds of things, and, and Satan takes it all away. To the point where Job's wife looks at him and tells him to curse God and die. Hard times, without a doubt, fall upon Job. And so eventually then, three friends come to help him grieve. And they do well at first. They actually just sit with him for about a week. I mean, can you imagine doing that? <laughs> Just sitting in sheer silence with someone else as they mourn. But it's often one of the best things that we can do is to just be there. So that they know that we care, they know we love them. But we, most often, we won't actually have anything all that helpful to say. As Christians today, thankfully, we can point to Christ when someone has lost a loved one who, who was, who is Christian. But oftentimes, what we end up seeing happen at funerals today is the same thing that happens when the friends finally start to open their mouths. So you have these three guys. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And as soon as they begin to open their mouth, we come to the realization that they should have kept their mouths shut. Uh, they just start saying things that aren't helping whatsoever. Um, some things that aren't even true at all. Eventually, another one does speak, a, a fourth guy who is present, we don't know as much about, his name was Elihu, um, and he offers some thoughts as well. Our text today is not from the interaction of any of the men. As they spoke to Job, or he answered back, or, or the back and forth that ensued. Our text today instead picks up near the end of the book, as God opens his mouth. 
to speak to Job. And we don't get the initial introduction of it. The first couple of verses are chopped off, as I mentioned before. But God is going to ask the question. Well, not the question. He's going to make the statement. I will question you and you make it known to me. And that's the verse that leads into our text. So I'm just going to read the whole of our text that we have for the day. And then we'll come back and we'll unpack bits and pieces of it in a couple of different ways. We'll we'll do a big picture look first, and then we'll do a kind of a, a zooming in and walking through the text that we usually do in this in this Bible class. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. This text invites us to focus on the hidden nature of God. God is beyond our understanding, far beyond our ability to comprehend. He is God. He is, we use the word infinite. He's without beginning. We can't even understand that statement. He's without end. We really don't have a good grasp of that statement either. He created everything around us simply by speaking. He spoke the earth into existence. He spoke the animals into existence. He spoke the sun and the stars and the moon into existence. Those have big ramifications for us because if God can speak things into existence, matters directly in your life because God speaks forgiveness into your life. And if God cannot have authority to speak something to be true, then the promises of the gospel are gone. So it does matter to us. We don't want to overlook that. But even at that, I mean, we still can't grasp it. We still can't fully understand all of these things. And that's what Job and his friends and Elihu were were wrestling with together. And so God here has responded with the idea that none of them knows. 
They do not know the things of God. They don't know his will. They don't know his hidden nature. They don't know how he works. And this was a wrestling for them. And it's still a wrestling in the church today. There are so many Christians who are always seeking to know what God's will is for their lives. They use the, the ever popular Bible verses. Um, I think, what is it? Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you. Uh, those kinds of verses. That verse wasn't spoken about you. That was very specifically spoken of someone else. God isn't a puppet master up in heaven pulling the strings. But even if he was, he wouldn't have to tell us. In fact, doesn't. We don't, we just, we don't know the will of God for our everyday life. We don't know the people that he may or may not have put around us. We just know the people that are around us. And it's been given to us to care for them as best we can. So the the task of, of trying to figure out our God's will for our life, God's purpose for our life, is really not that helpful. Pray to God. Trust in God. And use the different skills and interests that you have to serve the people that are around you. Love God, love your neighbor. We do know that much. So as we talk this about this hidden God, that is certainly true. He's above and beyond our understanding, but he does reveal himself to us in part, in some ways. He helps us to at least understand bits and pieces, and that's what his word is. That's what God's word, that's what the Bible is. It's God revealing himself to us that we may know to the extent that we need to, that we may know his plan for us. And so we get the creation account, how he made it all, the role that he had for us in creation, that we would be caretakers. We get the fall into sin, that we are broken, that we've rejected him. We get the account of Christ and all that he has done for us, all the promises, all the hope that we have. And all of scripture really truly is pointing us to that Christ, to our Savior, Jesus. So we have some revelation, some things revealed, some things made known. But beyond that, it doesn't serve us a lot of good to try and grapple with the hidden nature of God. Jesus himself mentions one of these kinds of moments. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, he says, No one knows the day or the hour. Not even the Son, but only the Father. Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples, Jesus did not know the day or the hour, and that's a reference to the last day when Christ would return. Instead, it's the Father only who knows. And so the picture that's given there is that God the Father will send God the Son again when it is time. No one knows, although we see this all the time, right? There's always someone out there predicting another end times prophecy for the church and saying it's going to happen in October of 2020. And 
every time that happens, it comes and goes. And Jesus himself said, no one knows. So it continues to baffle me that people try. We don't understand how God works. His ways are mysterious to us. And that's okay. It truly is. We don't need to grapple with everything and that happens in this world and try and figure out God's hidden purpose behind these things. Even the things that he's given to us are still mysteries in many ways. And we use that word in the church as pastors. We are stewards of the mysteries. Paul uses that language in one of his epistles. Think of the Lord's Supper. How does it work? How is that bread the body of Christ? How is that wine the blood of Christ? As Lutherans, we're okay simply looking at it and saying, I don't know. It just is because Jesus said it is. I'm not going to say that the bread turned into the body and is no longer bread. I'm not going to say that their bread and the body are there together. I'm going to avoid that kind of language. I'm just going to simply say what Jesus said. This is my body. I see bread when I look at the Lord's Supper, but I know it's Christ's body. Don't know how. It's a mystery to me, but it's also a promise. Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Take, drink. This is my blood of the new covenant given for you, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That much I know. And I trust in that. That's our picture of this text as a whole. Now, for individual notes on some of the, the things that are mentioned here along the way, verse 4, where were you when God made the earth? Well, Job was non-existent. This speech from its very opening verse is overwhelming. When God created the earth, none of us were around. Only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who determined its measurements? God. Who stretched the line upon it? God. We get a the first few verses here, really a, a construction, uh, the building of a home kind of an image for us, laying the foundations, determining the measurements, stretching the line, the measuring line, the tape, as we would call it today, typically, uh, sinking in the, the bases, using cornerstones, all of that kind of language is constructional. Uh, God, so he's built the earth uh, as a construction task, like a, a man would build a house or a company. And then the morning stars singing together. Wouldn't that be a sight? To see the heavens actually rejoicing. They're capable of it, which is again beyond our understanding, but Jesus has spoken before and said that if if the church doesn't proclaim the gospel, he can raise up stones. He can raise up children for Abraham from stones to do just that. The sons of God in verse 7 who shouted for joy are the angels. And we don't know when God created angels, but they are a part of his creation. Um, which would mean it makes sense for it to be be on the fourth, fifth, sixth day in that kind of a realm, but we just don't know. Angels aren't really depicted for us in that, that account. 
angels shout for joy together. They sing for joy together. Also in Revelation 19. So not just at the beginning of creation, but also really at the beginning of the new creation. The angels rejoice together in song. Verse 8, God gives the waters their boundaries. What day of creation would that be on? That would be the third day. Uh, and we get this infant language now. So we went, had building imagery before. Now we have baby imagery um, coming out of the womb, needing garments, needing swaddling clothes. Uh, those kinds of things come out here. Verse 11, thus far shall you come and no farther, God said to the waters. That might bring you to think of the Red Sea. As God parted the Red Sea and he had the barriers of water on each side, the land was dry underneath that the people could walk across. Or the calming of the storm, Jesus does in the New Testament. We even have a, an event like that in today's text, although a little different. In today's gospel reading, Jesus doesn't actually speak to the storm. His very presence calms the storm as he enters the boat. So we'll see that in the gospel text. In verse 12, the question is essentially, do you get, do you make the day start? Do you actually talk to the sun and get it up in the morning? Verse 13, the image there, grabbing the skirts of the earth and shaking out the wicked. It's like picking up the rug in your house and taking it outside and shaking the dust out of it. Can you do that to the earth? Can you do that to the wicked? It's also a reference to John 3, verses 19 through 21, as Jesus talks about how evil deeds are done in darkness, and those evil deeds are revealed by the coming of the light, which he was using to refer to himself. Verse 14, the, the clay changing under a seal. We don't do a lot of this anymore. This is the idea of the old signet ring. We, we have a couple of those. Um, they end up being called bula, B-U-L-L-A. Um, you can look those up. Look up Hezekiah's bula or Isaiah's bula. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that we might have. But a bula was basically a signet ring. So you think of a, a ring that has a an engraving in it of some sort. And if they wanted to to make an official seal instead of a signature, they would take either hot wax at one point in history or at this point clay, and they would use that ring, they would press that into the clay, and it would make the, the seal, it would make the impression in the clay that served as their official signature, essentially. Today, a more visible image of that would be Plato and children playing with Plato, and they have all these different tools and toys that they can use to make impressions and imprints into Plato with, making all kinds of shapes and textures of, of different things. So our children could probably pick up on this language that way. The idea that it stands out like a garment. It's a tension grabbing. You know, you, you see that, that person's outfit and it just calls your attention to it. Uh, whether it's a, a nice dress or, you know, the, the top that a guy's wearing or whatever it may be. And it just, 
It makes a statement, might be the way we would say it. Verse 15, God takes life away from the wicked. That's what he takes their light away from them. Uh, to take away the light is to take away Christ. To take away Christ is to take away life. God has broken their uplifted arm. So as their arm is stretched out to commit acts of violence, God has broken that arm. They are no longer able to be violent. God has put an end to it. Verse 16, literally the depths of creation, the lowest places of the world. Uh, when you're talking about the recesses of the deep, the ocean bottom. Even to this day, we can't walk there. The deepest point on earth known to us is known as the Marianas Trench. It's 35,814 feet below sea level, or, you know, a good 6.78 miles down. That's a long way. And only three people in the history of the world have ever been there. In 1960... Uh, Navy Lieutenant Don Walsh and explorer Jacques Picard took a submersible and went to the bottom of the ocean. They went to the bottom of the trench. And Lieutenant Walsh, when interviewed about it at one point after the return, mentioned that when they were getting close, they saw a fish down there, uh, said it looked kind of like a halibut. But he doesn't have much of any recollection of seeing anything else because as soon as they touched the bottom, it stirred up the, 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 the seafloor and they were basically whitewashed. They couldn't see anything out the window except for white. And then they spent the rest of their time in the little vehicle returning to the surface. That was 1960. In 2012, for a reason I didn't look into, James Cameron, a filmmaker, actually went to the the Marianas Trench, and went to the bottom. So three men ever, but even at that, couldn't leave, couldn't walk on the ground, couldn't even see. With all the impressive technology, all that we can do, we still can't do this. We can't walk on the bottom of the ocean. It just doesn't work that way. But God can. It's his creation. There's a neat wordplay happening there in verse 17 as well. Um, Gates of death and gates of deep darkness. The Hebrew word for death is maweth. And the gates of deep darkness, the deep darkness phrase is tsao maweth. So the maweth word of death is included in, in the deep darkness phrase as well. So the, those words are connected. But we would hope that Job has not seen the gates of death. We would hope that we have not seen the gates of death. Um, that, that would not be a good thing. It would not be a pleasant thing sight to behold. Lastly, verse 18. God invites Job to declare it, to make the statement, if you know all these things, tell me. If you don't, you're not God, so stop trying to be. This conversation is going to actually continue all the way through chapter 40, verse 2, God is going to continue to simply speak this same exact way until you get to 42, chapter 40, verse 2, where God says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job essentially says that he has spoken poorly and needs to shut up. 
And then God goes on another conversation with Job. Job finally gets to speak again at chapter 42's beginning. And I did want to share that with you. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the speech of God brings Job where it should. It brings Job to repent of his sin, to see his Savior, and to trust that the Lord will care for him. That is our, really, that's about all we get from the book of Job in the lectionary. So we turn to our epistle text from Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 17. This one continues our reading from last week, even though it skips a little a bit of text. So we skipped over the end of, of chapter 9 into the beginning of chapter 10. But chapter 10, verses 5 through 17, are continuing that hope from last week that the Jewish people may come to know Christ and be saved. That was the beginning of chapter 9. Paul wants his Jewish brethren to repent and to be part of God's kingdom. This letter that Paul wrote to Rome ended up being pivotal in helping Luther realize that the word righteousness in Scripture doesn't always refer to the exact same thing. The righteousness of God can be spoken of in a couple of different ways, and this is, it shows up here. So it does not always refer to the, the righteousness that God expects of us. Sometimes the righteousness of God refers to the righteousness that he actually gives us. That was the big revelation for Luther. Now, in this particular section, we see two kinds of righteousness, which is a, a phrase we pick up in our Lutheran theology, uh, sometimes abbreviated 2KR, and we end up talking about a vertical righteousness and a horizontal righteousness. So your vertical righteousness is your standing, your position before the Lord. In this place, you bring nothing to the table. This is the second righteousness in this text, the righteousness by faith. It is entirely a gift. It is based on what Jesus has done for you, as he has forgiven you, and you now stand before God wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness. That is vertical righteousness. Now, horizontal righteousness um, is your, your standing before your neighbor. That's the horizontal part, the relationship between men on earth, rather than up and down between us to God and heaven. It's here. And this, then, is the first righteousness in the text based on the law, uh, the commandments of God. What are they meant to do? They're meant to help us love our neighbor. So that's kind of fitting here, uh, but that's the, the idea of 2KR, two kinds of righteousness in a nutshell. Um, it's looking at how we love God and how we love our neighbor. Now, in this particular text, Paul brings up this righteousness based on the law, 
the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So let's go ahead and read this. We'll start with a paragraph that is verses 5 through 13. And then we'll double back after that. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this first righteousness, the righteousness of the law, had we, the people of God, actually kept God's law for us, we would have lived. But that didn't last long at all. I mean, we don't actually get the day or the hour when Adam and Eve fall into sin. But it happens pretty quickly. And creation has been destroyed ever since. So we talk about creation being perfect before the fall. Adam and Eve's fertility would have also been perfect. So as they were fulfilling the command God gave to them to fill the earth and subdue it, we, our best understanding would be that the time in paradise, the time in the Garden of Eden, didn't last for nine months. Because no children were born while they were in the garden. Others, on the other hand, so nine months is, you know, 270-ish days, Others will go as far as to suggest that the temptation of the devil happened on day seven when God rested. The devil came in. We don't have an answer. Scriptures don't reveal that. So as we talk about the hiddenness of, hidden nature of God, we don't need to try to find it out. But that's your ballpark. That's how long perfection lasted in creation, somewhere between a few hours and a few months and the rest of history has been soiled with our sin so we have failed to keep the law and nonetheless god gives the law anyway it is the will of god for his people to live by this law and really to do good to one another i mean you think about the law don't kill each other don't steal from each other don't be jealous and try to you know covetous of the things that your neighbor has Wouldn't we all like to live in a place that kept the Ten Commandments? Well, maybe not all. Sinful people are sinful people, and there are many who would probably say they would not like to live that lifestyle. 
but it doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean it's not just. It is what God gave us. And even in the fourth commandment, you shall honor your father and mother. We learn that is the, the, that that is the first commandment, the promise that you shall live long in the land that Yahweh your God has given to you. The purpose of the law, as first given, is to care for our neighbor, and it's for it to be kept, that we would be good stewards of God's creation and those around us. But having failed at this, the, that law does not give life. And so instead, we have this righteousness based on faith. Now again, faith is trust. The, the Latin word for faith is fides, and it means trust. So to have faith in Christ means you trust in Christ. You trust in his promises that he has given for you. Now, Paul says you don't have to ascend into heaven. You don't have to descend into the abyss. You don't have to search for Christ in heaven or hell because he has come. Christ has come to us. And so what does the, the word say? Uh, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Righteousness is God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus, is here. And that's going to get explained in the rest of the, the, the verses below. Paul says it's the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul speaks that way several times in his epistles. Essentially, brothers, you already have the gospel. You don't need anything else. Don't listen to any other gospels. Don't listen to any other uh, thoughts and ideas, teachings about God. You have all that you need. Stick to what you've been taught. He says that to the Galatians who were struggling in their faith. He says it to the young pastor Timothy as he writes his letter to him. Those are a couple of examples of it there. And then we get this twofold, uh, verse 9 and 10 both. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. Verse 10 flips it around. Believe, confess. So the two go hand in hand. We don't need to separate them. We shouldn't separate them. If you believe in Christ, you ought to confess. And if you confess, you believe. So th these things are not necessary to be separated. In fact, in a, in a faithful Christian, a Christian who actually does believe, you can't separate these two things. It should be worth noting that in verse 9, you will be saved is a passive statement. It's also future, so it's coming. But it's passive. You can't earn your salvation. It is something that has been earned for you by the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, Paul cites Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 here. That those who believe in God will not be put to shame. Now the reference there is not in our earthly life. Christians will face shame in creation because our sinful neighbors delight in shaming us just as they delighted in shaming Jesus. And that's the other thing here, that we will not be put to shame. We are not put to shame because Jesus was put to shame 
for us. Jesus took our shame upon himself on the cross in order that when we face the judgment throne of God, and that's what this ultimately then refers to, we will not be put to shame. We will not be cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We will be welcomed in. We will be invited to sit at the table for the heavenly banquet that never ends. Verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is an important note, and it's already shown up in the Old Testament, although the the Israelites didn't see it very well, and, and nor did the people in Christ's time. But the message of Scripture is clear. Whether it's the Old or the New Testament, salvation is for all people. God loves all of his creation. And so the death of Christ on the cross is not limited. Jesus did not die on the cross for 17% of the population. Jesus died on the cross for everyone. He, he died to forgive every sin ever. Unfortunately, there are way too many people who can hear that good news and still reject it. Why is salvation for all? Why is there no distinction between Jew and Greek? For the same Lord is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord over all of creation. All of it. Everything in this world belongs to God. It's his. And so Jesus, as Lord of all people, bestows his riches on his people. Again, unfortunately, there are those who reject that. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is a citation from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. As we look to then the second paragraph of our text, verse 14 through 17, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul begins to reason his way through the the call to faith, the call to salvation, to becoming one of those in verse 12 or 13 who calls on Jesus that we may be saved. And it really ends up being about the task of us disciples. You can't call on someone that you don't believe. So they're not, the unbeliever is not going to call on the name of Jesus to be saved. They don't believe that Jesus will save them. So you got to get past that first. All right, so how do we get them to believe? Well, 
How can we expect them to believe if they've never heard? They can't believe in Jesus if they've never heard of what Jesus has done for them. How are they to hear if no one's preached it to them? So now we need the preacher. Now we need someone to share that good news. And that's us. That's all of us. It's not just the pastoral office that is to be sharing God's word with others. How are they to preach unless they are sent? That is also all of us. You are a sent one. From the waters of the baptismal font, you have been sent. As soon as you are a disciple of Jesus, a learner is what disciple means, a learner of Jesus, you partake of that task of, of sharing Christ with others. And that brings us to the Isaiah 52 quote in verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, only people today who are grossed out by feet probably understand just what this message is trying to communicate. Because feet today are generally much cleaner than they used to be. Old Testament and New Testament times, feet were filthy, disgusting things. Because your roadways, your homes, were just dirt. The roads were made out of dirt. There were no sidewalks. There was, was no streets paved in most of these societies for you to be a part of. And so you walked on dirty roads, muddy roads. And so if you had a, a blister or an open sore, it would get dirty, it would get infected. Um, feet were just filthy. This is why foot washing for Jesus and the disciples is such a big deal in the gospel accounts. But that's not our text for today. Instead, our text is the Isaiah text, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Now, ultimately, that's going to be Jesus himself who brings this good news of salvation to us. How beautiful are the feet. No Christian would insult the feet of Jesus. His feet are beautiful. Why? Because he was sent by the Father. He came to us, dirty feet and all, announcing the good news of salvation in him. And so now you are a beautiful-footed one, sent by God to share the good news. And so you take it with you, wherever you go. Again, verse 16 stresses what we've said before. Unfortunately, not all listen, not all hear. That's what that word obey actually means, is to listen. Um, you listen first, and then by your listening, you essentially you have a positive response to what you've heard. We think of obey meaning basically, basically do what you're told. Uh, that's what it means to be obeying. And puts the stress on the wrong thing. The emphasis of the word obey from its lingual, lingual roots is more, much more on the listening than it is on any acting. And so for Jesus elsewhere, as he spoke, uh, he focuses on this word hear. He liked to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that was a reference to faith. So here uh, in verse 16, those who have not obeyed, not all who have not all have obeyed the gospel as a reference to people not having faith. They haven't heard. They haven't listened. They don't have the righteousness of faith. They don't trust in Jesus. 
he then quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Not everyone has believed. Before we come to the verse 17, which is maybe the most famous line in this text, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if we want our neighbor to call on Jesus for salvation, they need to hear and they'll hear from us. We preach the gospel. Our neighbor hears the gospel. We are sent to preach the gospel. Our neighbor hears the gospel. Our neighbor is brought to faith by the gospel. Our neighbor believes in Jesus, and our neighbor calls upon the Lord on the day of judgment. That's the process of the text. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we should not expect people to come to faith because we force them to, or even because we do wonderful things for them. Here we learn that faith comes through hearing. So yes, you should do wonderful things for your neighbor, not, not stopping you from that. But we also have to do the wonderful thing for our neighbor, which is to actually tell them the good news of Jesus. For our gospel text this weekend, we have Matthew chapter 14, and it's verses 22 to 33. It starts with the word immediately, so we need to look at our context just briefly. It's the context of feeding the 5,000. That Jesus has just fed the 5,000 men, plus women and children, uh, and now we have the event that follows. So we'll read the first paragraph, verses 22 to 27. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. This text does have some focus for us today on the idea of separation, um, distance versus closeness and worship. So we're going to look at that a couple of times as we move through. But we start again, the context being just after the feeding of the 5,000. Now the disciples before the meal had asked Jesus to dismiss the crowds. Let's send people away, let them get food in the villages. Jesus had denied it then and insisted that the disciples provide the food. After the meal, now Jesus dismisses everybody. So he dismisses the disciples and then he dismisses the crowd. Uh, I can almost imagine the dismissing of the crowd happened with a blessing as well, um, as that's a fairly common practice of Jesus with, with his disciples. It's a common practice of us in the church today. But maybe not. We don't know. Verse 22. The disciples cross the Sea of Galilee again. They get into a boat, they go across the sea. Uh, this seems to be a fairly common occurrence. We don't know how often they were doing this, but we see it 
several times easily in Matthew's gospel alone. So while they're going, Jesus goes a different direction. He goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. Now, it's a mountainous region. It's a very hilly territory, so there's lots of things this could be a reference to. But the point is kind of, again, the separation, the distance. Jesus goes the opposite. From land, he goes up. Now, with water, we would often talk about going down. So the disciples, they may be in a boat. They're not actually down in the water. But the, the distance, they have left land onto water. And so that, that makes the separation all the more distinct between the two, between Jesus and his disciples. And the boat makes quite a distance because it's being pushed along by the sea. The sea is a little treacherous that night waves beating the boat we're not actually told this is a storm um, but certainly not a not a calm sea by any means likely like it was in matthew chapter 8 uh, we should consider this to be the lord's working that the lord is the one who is beating the boat with the waves in order for his purposes to be revealed in his son jesus now the fourth watch of the night roman society looked at the day in the two parts. So you had the day, uh, roughly 12 hours. You had the night, roughly 12 hours. The day for them was the, the hours of, of sunlight, which roughly 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So your evening hours are 6 to 6 the other way, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And they divided that into four shifts, four watches, and even shifts of three hours apiece. So this fourth watch is a reference to 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., Somewhere in that time window, Jesus comes to his disciples. They're tired. They're battered. They've been pushed along, and they've been pushed for quite some time. They've made some distance. Yet Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. This is a connection to Job 36.16, where we talked before in the Old Testament reading about the idea that God could walk in the recesses of the deep. Here it's not in the deep, but God is actually walking on the water. God is walking on the sea as he goes out to his disciples. Seeing this, instead of being comforted, instead of being wowed by Jesus and who Jesus is, the disciples instead are terrified. They essentially shriek and scream and proclaim that it's a ghost. Now, that word is not a reference to what we would normally think of as the Holy Ghost. Some churches like that phrase, some like the Holy Spirit phrasing. This is instead a different Greek word. It's phantasma, which is where we get our word phantom in English. And this is one of only two times we see it in the New Testament. The other time is in Mark chapter 6, and it's Mark's account of Jesus walking on the water. So this, this is a Really, in a sense, it's a unique word that only gets used in the New Testament this one time, this one account. So they see this thing. They can't explain this thing. So it chalks up to some kind of phenomenon that is terrifying to them. And we just don't know much more than that. But they saw power. They saw authority over creation. And it was foreign to them. They didn't understand it. But Jesus immediately speaks to them. 
He doesn't waste time. He calls out to his disciples. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now that take heart phrase has been used twice in the gospel already, back in chapter 9 both times. Um, I prefer to use, when I translate the text, as be confident, uh, because quite honestly, I'm not sure what it means when you say to someone, take heart. Um, be confident a lot more clear. The, the word in Greek can translate as be confident or be courageous. Uh, so if those terms are helpful to you, Jesus is telling the disciples that they are okay, that they can trust. They don't need to be afraid because it is he who stands before them. It is he who is with them, Jesus himself. The do not be afraid part is not just a greeting that Jesus uses, but also common for the angels to use. They're servants of God with great power. When they come, people often have to be told to not be afraid. Now let's look at the second paragraph, verses 28 through 33, because we see this wondrous appearance of Jesus revealing his divine nature to the disciples, his authority over creation to his disciples, and even speaking to them directly. And how did the disciples respond? Did they respond in faith? Certainly not at first. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So Peter is the chief of the disciples, and Jesus' word to Peter wasn't enough. Having the Lord of the universe, whose spoken word created the universe, speak to you directly and say that it is it is him and to not be afraid and yet that's not good enough for peter if that's not good enough what will do it peter gives this ridiculous request which really doesn't make sense that he, he's asking to walk on the water it's a challenge it's sinful man's challenge instead of simply believing at the word of Jesus. Instead, Peter wants to do something. That's our sinful nature. It's even how we view salvation. We don't, we don't want salvation to just be a gift. We want to be able to take ownership in it. I want to do something. How can I save myself? And that shows up in a lot of minor ways, not just the big obvious ways either. And so Peter's struggling with that here. He wants to do something. And so Jesus gives him the simple invitation. He gives in to Peter's request. Come. One word. Come. And Peter does it. The astonishing thing is, it's working. Peter is actually walking on the water. A, a task that for man is impossible. But when Peter's eyes were fixed on Jesus, when his trust was fixed on Jesus only, he was doing just what Jesus instructed him to do. But as soon as he took his eyes off of Christ, as soon as he took his focus off of Christ, he fell. Literally. He fell, he doubted, but he also fell into the water. And he has to cry out, save me. And Jesus does. Now remember, that's what Jesus' name means. 
Matthew's gospel begins with the instruction from the, the angel to Mary that she should name her son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means he saves. So Peter's request is that Jesus, the Savior, would save him. And we get the third immediately in the event. Jesus immediately acts to save Peter. Um, immediately is a word that the, the disciple Mark really likes to use. Matthew picks up on it a few times, but not nearly as often as Mark. But for some weird reason, whatever reason, uh, here in this section of chapter 14, it shows up these three times. A lot of action in this text. Jesus' response to Peter after saving him is humbling. But it's true. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter doubted. Had Peter not doubted, had he kept his eyes on Jesus, he would have walked to Jesus. But he didn't trust. He feared the things of this world. He feared the storm. He feared his own knowledge that walking on the water wasn't possible. He did not trust in his Lord. Peter and Jesus get into the boat, and as soon as they do, the wind ceases. That brings us back to Job as well. Job 38, verse 11, where we learn that God can speak to the water and say, Thus far shall you come and no farther. Your proud waves halt. And they worship him. The disciples worship Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. That is a true statement. But the disciples at this point have still only seen just a glimpse of who Jesus is. And they've seen it again and again. But they will continue to see more of who Jesus is and just what it is that he has come to do for them in the chapters to come. Oh,